0: to grok science my name is danny and today i'm uh, joined by the author of how to clone a mammoth the science of de-extinction beth shapiro welcome to the show beth hi danny <laughs> hi so i think the first question i thought to open with was um so is it possible to clone a mammoth
1: <laughs> <laughs> it depends what you are willing to accept as a mammoth how's that for an answer <laughs>
0: okay yeah that's <laughs> that's an interesting answer um so so what do you mean willing to accept as a mammoth
1: yeah so i I'll answer that question probably more reliably for you if you tell me what it is that you would be willing to accept as a mammoth
0: okay <laughs> um so i think um so I think a mammoth is like uh it's like a a, a big uh, a, a really big, uh, el- almost an elephant, I, I don't think they're related, maybe they're related to elephants, I'm not sure, um, and they're from like uh, Ice Age times, something like that, they have like long, shaggy hair, and these like curly tusks.
1: Yeah, so would you be willing to accept then an elephant that's got long hair, and can live in a cold place, is that a mammoth?
0: <laughs> um, I mean, from what I understand of mammoths, yeah, that sounds that sounds good enough, <laughs>
1: All right. Well, in in that case, if that if that's all that you need in order to say that a mammoth has been resurrected, then, uh, yeah, I think that's that's probably possible.
0: (laughs) Interesting. Okay. so so you're very specific. And and I think that, like, this is one of the things I really enjoyed about about the book is that it it drives down to to, um, I guess, to try to use more scientific language to, to describe what ends up being like a casual question that someone asks why do you say that it's easier to make a mammoth that has, or easier to make an elephant with hair and and tusks that lives in the cold um, than to make a a mammoth, like truly, truly a mammoth, like uh, Jurassic Park style, let's say, like, you know, revitalize the DNA from the past and and create that. Why is one easier than the other?
1: Well, you know, I think these are all, these are all uh, different points on the same spectrum. If you think about, The way evolution happens, you don't jump from one box being one species to another box that's another species immediately. This isn't the way it works. There's a long continuum of small evolutionary changes that happen to get you from one place to another. So Asian elephants are the closest living relatives of mammoths. Asian elephants and mammoths shared a common ancestor only around maybe three to five million years ago. So they haven't been evolving separately for for very long. And we can, now that we have genome sequences from a bunch of mammoths and genome sequences from a bunch of Asian elephants, we can line up those sequences on a computer and ask how they're different from each other, and we can actually come up with a list. We know that there are maybe one and a half million letter differences in the DNA code, the genome, that makes up these two species between them. So if I wanted to create a genome in a cell, in addition a lab, that was exactly like that. Of a mammoth, I could start with an Asian elephant genome and just edit, just tweak, you know, copy paste your way using modern genome editing technologies from this uh, elephant genome sequence to a mammoth genome sequence. That is theoretically possible. Uh, technically, it's a little bit too hard to do right now. The technology isn't quite good enough to do a million and a half changes. Okay, but too, we can do too, some. Too many changes. Let's say It's too many. So let's say we've identified a few changes, a few differences that are in genes, regions of the genome that actually code for stuff that's important. So you said you wanted an elephant to have long hair and be able to live in the cold. So let's say we've identified a suite of genes associated with having long hair and being able to live in the cold, right? Maybe we could just tweak those, take that elephant sequence and change just maybe 50 or 60 or 100 different sites in that genome. And then you'd have an elephant cell in addition, a lab that has some genes that are likely to make it look more mammoth-like. This is exactly what George Church and his lab are doing at Harvard right now. They're um, taking elephant cells and editing them to have changes that will hopefully mean that if an animal is ever made out of those edited cells, it will have traits that Make it better able to survive in the cold. so this is the that's the avenue for for getting that way, and that's why I said that you know it depends on on what you mean okay.
0: so so the fact that i've the fact that I've chosen um like this restricted suite of of traits that I define as a mammoth, it means that uh, you can basically count you know it, it's a finite amount of changes that need to be made, and someday technology will reach that finite amount of changes, and I'll be able to have my mammoth, opposed to saying the entire mammoth, which is too many changes, because like, technology will never reach that amount.
1: Well, yes and no, uh, and that's because you know we, we are, as is every other species, uh, not just the result of the sequence of the DNA that's in our cells, but we are a combination of what our genes are doing and the environment to which we're exposed. Right. And we know that this is true. A lot of the reasons that we know that the environment is very important in influencing the way we look and act uh, is a lot of this has come through twin studies, where you see two two people who have identical genomes, but who are very different, who may, might even, if they're um, raised separately, they might even be different heights, they might have very different attitudes, they might be very different weights, There there are lots of differences that we see between twins, and the older people get, the more different they become, and this is all because of the action of stuff outside of their genome, and that includes maybe chemicals that we're exposed to, or uh, the microbes that are living inside our guts, or the diets that we eat, the stresses that we're exposed to, and we, if we turn this around, back around to thinking about a mammoth, we can't really recreate any of that stuff because the environment that mammoths lived in is gone. So even if we were to make that entire exact genome sequence of a mammoth, we wouldn't really have the environmental influence that we would need to make sure that it didn't just turn into an elephant.
0: Gotcha, yeah, no, that that makes a lot of sense because like they were made in a certain place at a certain time in in the environment and that certain place and time, that those environmental conditions are now gone.
1: And even the prenatal conditions. So we know that um, during development, uh, a lot of the timing of gene expression has, is because of hormones that are expressed by the mom. And if your mom is an elephant and not a mammoth, how do we know that the timing and duration of expression or the amount of expression of different genes isn't going to be different? And that isn't somehow going to affect the trajectory of development. So you end up with something that is, again, more elephant-like than mammoth-like.
0: gotcha so even even if we were able to make some of the this list of changes we may not get right exactly that mammoth of the past right we'll get something that's a little bit different
1: yeah yeah so one of the reasons that uh you know when you think about cloning any other species it's exactly the same thing like you if you take your your pet dog you know there's this um this company in south korea that will clone your pet dog for you for a a mere hundred thousand dollars or so Um, But if you do that, remember that the the animal that results from this might look a lot like your pet, but it won't have been born in the same place. It won't have been raised in the same way. It won't have any of the same experiences. It'll have a totally different diet, a totally different uh, hormones expressed during development. It will be exposed to new and different things at birth. It's not going to be the same animal. A clone is not the same thing. it's It's a genetically identical, completely different organism that will probably look and definitely act different from the organism that it
0: used to be. right. Yeah, genetics are only one part of the organism, right? And there's all these other factors that go into to creating that whole. right? Um, okay, so so let's just say that you know uh, when when we talk about cloning a mammoth, we're just talking about making that cold resistant, shaggy elephant. Um. What's the What's the point? Because <laughs> I think it's a cool question. I always like, like, you know, I asked the question: Is it possible to clone a mammoth? Just because <laughs> I know you said you wrote wrote this book because people didn't stop asking you that question. Um. But but let's say like we we just take the definition of a mammoth as this cold resistant elephant. Why would we want to make that anyways? Well, people who
1: are thinking about bringing extinct species back to life have lots of different ideas. Or or arguments for why the species that they're, they are promoting for de-extinction or resurrection, whatever you want to call it, um, should be brought back. In the case of a mammoth, I think that the two people who are most strongly arguing in favor of this are George Church and his group at Harvard, and a guy called Sergei Zimov, who's a, a Russian Academy of Science scientist. He works in in north central siberia and he has a bit of land up there that he's calling pleistocene park and pleistocene park you know, obviously this is named after jurassic park pleistocene is the epoch when we had things like mammoths and mastodons living around the, the ice ages were the pleistocene and so he's arguing that we should uh, bring these species back to the pleistocene because it, that that these species back as they were in the Pleistocene because um, their extinction left a kind of gaping hole in the ecosystem that has kind of shifted the balance of productivity up there. And to, in favor of this, so trying to, kind of, to support his argument, he has established a community of large grazing herbivores in his property up there that includes bison imported from Canada, um, several different species of deer and some wild horses. And they've shown that just over the course of a couple of years, having these animals on the landscape, that they're moving around and distributing nutrients and you know distributing seeds, et cetera, digging up the snow in the winter for the grasses. They have actually reestablished just by being there, this rich and diverse community of grasses that used to be there, that used to support this huge ecosystem. And his argument is that these animals are part of a pretty rich and diverse community that together functions best, right? And when you remove components of these ecosystems, you're actually removing important interactions, ecological interactions from an ecosystem, and that can uh, make that entire ecosystem be in danger of disappearing. And so you can see, in, you know, in many cases, you see these little extinction cascades that happen. I think a good argument is a, there's a little species called the, the kangaroo rat that lives in the desert areas in, in California and Western states, and when these guys go extinct, um, What happens is over the course of just a few months, you get a complete reorganization of the community and lots of extinction, different bird species stop coming. These little guys are ecosystem engineers. They run around, they dig everything up, they create these little dirt runways, and when they disappear, grasslands quickly come in and you lose an empire niche that used to be there. So the argument that some people support for resurrecting extinct species is that we don't really need the species, but in many cases, we might need proxy species to reestablish missing interactions that that would otherwise have sustained a more healthy
0: and more diverse ecosystem. Hmm. So it's, it's almost a way of, <laughs> so it's, uh, we're bringing back the traits of a certain species, but what we're getting in return, um, once we release them into the environment, is we're seeing um, the impact of those traits reshape the environment in a different, in, in some way that is presumably good, like the increase of complexity, or, or niches is what you're saying.
1: Yeah, So the and you don't need to bring back identical extinct species to do this. You just need to reestablish these interactions. You know bring back proxies that can fill a, a missing ecological niche and potentially help to stabilize an ecosystem make it healthier etc
0: aren't there so many species already on the planet would it, uh when you're talking about bringing back um some sorts of interactions couldn't you just find interactions that already exist in the world and like cut and paste them into the new environments
1: yeah, absolutely. If there are traits in living species that we can use, then yes, we can engineer living species so that they can live in different places. And and that's really what you're talking about with a the, with the mammoth here is taking an elephant, which is a living species, and tweaking his genome a little bit so that he can actually function and survive in a cold place. And then putting an elephant in the place where mammoths used to be as a way of having a proxy to this extinct species, but that is a living species. That can put there. It's also started to be called genetic rescue, this idea that you can uh, manipulate the genomes of the species in some way either to save that particular species. and um, there's some really cool projects with blackfooted ferret to do that that, that I can tell you about, or to to create um, to edit or manipulate species so that they can be used in place of extinct species to so uh, uh, perform a role that is missing from that ecosystem because of an extinction.
0: So, I mean, I can definitely get on board with this idea of uh, restoring ecosystems or restoring, like, uh, niches that have been lost, right, through maybe human activity or something like this. Um, I guess my question is, what sort of science, what sort of studies, I guess, need to be done uh, to show us that this is – that, that this um, type of action this genetic rescue is really the key technology to pursue forwards in in restoring some of the lost diversity that maybe we've generated as humans
1: Well I think what we actually need are many technologies that we can use uh, this technology will work maybe in some situations we're very far from being able to do it in a in a replicable way across lots of different species that we can preserve environments. We need to continue to do what we're doing today to preserve environments, but also not fear so much that we aren't willing to take any risk. potential technological solutions that we can also look to. I think that we shouldn't close our eyes to technologies that are slightly scary just because we're a little bit nervous about what might happen. Um, But we also uh, shouldn't, stop continuing to do the the excellent conservation work that's being done today. So I, I don't know if that was your question, if we should totally shift all of our resources to something crazy, because it might work. I'm saying no to that. I'm saying let's see this as an opportunity to get new resources and new ideas and, and some maybe even new players into the game here.
0: I think maybe that just stems from a little bit of my misunderstanding and thinking about the timelines to technology. And so when we talk about this genetic rescue and de-extinction in terms of its ability to uh, restore an environment, that's like a long that's like a long way away. Am I correct in saying that?
1: It depends on species and it depends on what the problem is. I mean, the this Blackfoot ferret project that I just talked about. This is, you um, know, blackfooted ferrets are of an endangered species that there are successful captive breeding programs for. So we thought these blackfoot ferrets were extinct in the 80s, I believe. Uh, in fact, there was a concerted effort to make them extinct because they were known.
0: They were <laughs> a past, right?
1: Yeah. People found a surviving population. and This was exciting and decided that they really wanted to, to save the species from extinction. Um, and captive breeding works really well. Unfortunately, when this species is reintroduced into the wild, they pretty much immediately get sick and die. And part of the reason for this is that um, when they nearly went extinct, very little genetic diversity survived. That's called a population bottleneck. You have lots of bad stuff that's exposed or you lose diversity. And as we know, um, one of the most important places in the genome that species are diverse is in the MHC, major histamine complex, part of the genome that allows us a diversity of ways to fight disease, right? Um, And so the idea of this particular project, which is being spearheaded by a group called Revive and Restore outside of San Francisco, that's Ryan Phelan and Stuart Brand's organization, um, is to look at the genomes of black-footed ferrets that were preserved prior to this near extinction that the species went through. Those genomes contain past diversity from this same species and then to target the region of the genome that's important to increase the diversity of um, the part of the genome that is responsible for resistance to disease or being able to fight disease and then use that as a way of editing the species that are there. So increase the diversity of living animals by adding in, injecting, using modern technology, DNA from the same, same species, but from the past. This is another form of genetic rescue. Now, the reason that we're kind of far behind on using this technology for other species, there are many of them, but one of the most important reasons is that it's very easy to say, awesome. We can identify a problem, phenotype some way that the thing looks or acts that's causing it to go extinct. This is potentially a cause for why it is endangered. Right. And we could then go into the past and find either close relative species or examples of the species from before humans started messing with them and make them merely go extinct. And we can then inject that past diversity into the present. It's very hard to know where to look in the genome, what genes we're talking about. I mean, we have a lot of genome sequences from lots of different animals now. And a genome is like, for a mammal, it's like, you know, three billion letters, a string of three billion letters on a computer. Right. But the genes, the part of the genome that does stuff, that's about 2% of those 3 billion letters. And we don't really know what all those genes do, and we don't really know where all those genes are, and we don't really know how those genes interact with each other. And that's for species that we study a lot. Now, go into species like an elephant or some other wild species that's endangered, and we have very little information to go on. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done um, at, on on both the technological scale, but also on the just standard how-does-stuff-work perspective um, that we would need to figure out.
0: So, so in this example, in the example of the black-footed ferret that you're describing, um, we presumably have, and you said we had this historical record of the black-footed ferret's genomes, but we don't know which genes to start introducing into the population in order to relieve the bottleneck.
1: For the black-footed ferret, we do. For most other species, we don't. And this is why I said, you know, this is, uh, it's hard. And it the you, everybody always asks when. So when are we going to have this? And the, it, the answer is different for every species that you're thinking about Um, that sometimes the technical hurdles are in the genome. Sometimes the technical hurdles are in reproductive strategies. Sometimes the technical hurdles are that we don't yet really understand why the species went extinct in the first place or what the problem is. And if we haven't solved that problem, then we probably shouldn't put it or a proxy species back in place because it would probably just go extinct again, right? So we have to understand the problem before we can solve it.
0: Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. yeah so I I mean in some ways I'm I'm trying to simply think of and I know that's maybe only one application of this um, gene rescue technology right I'm simply trying to think of it as well what do we need to know before we employ it and and what problems does it actually solve
1: sure but there are other things too right you also have to think what are the implications of the things that are already in that ecosystem? So one of the species that's often thought of as a candidate for the extinction is the passenger pigeon. This was a bird that flocked in the billions of individuals and then suddenly was driven to extinction over the course of less than a century. and went extinct in 1914. So should we bring the passenger pigeon back? Well, obviously it was an important component of its ecosystem. It, it killed a lot of trees. It spread a lot of seeds. It did a lot of stuff. But... Is there really a place that we could put passenger pigeons today without them causing more damage than would would be good? I mean, has the ecosystem that it lived in disappeared or changed so much that there really isn't a space to put them in without cascading and potentially negative consequences to other species that are there? So the risk evaluation to be done before we would embark on this would include not only what the, the possible benefits of reintroducing that species would be but also the risks to other species of doing so because you know environments are not static A species doesn't go extinct leaving a massive gaping hole uh, for hundreds and thousands of years but they'll change and adapt and other species will move in and extinctions will occur etc so you know this is a comp- complex process
0: part about what you're saying about being uh being enthusiastic about embracing like a new technology, but at the same time um, having to think very carefully about how to use it. So in the case of the passenger pigeon, where like when you said it, my mind lights up and I'm like, oh yeah, that passenger pigeon, you know, <laughs> I've heard that it was so abundant back in the day, we need, we should bring it back. Um, like somewhere the brakes have to go on and we have to think uh, critically, like how you were describing that perhaps, there are some aspects where maybe the passenger pigeon isn't the, the right thing to bring back.
1: I think the brakes need to go, need to be on from the beginning though. I mean, that, that's what I was saying. You need to, we need to understand um, why things went extinct. We need to understand the, um, what their role in their ecosystem was, what their potential role in the, in the present day ecosystem might be. And that will include not only uh, uh, the kind of downward trophic cascade, what will they eat, but also what will eat them and how will their presence af- affect all the different levels of organisms that are there. And is it, is it possible then the technology, I think the the questions about whether it's actually technically feasible should come after the careful consideration of whether it's a good idea.
0: <laughs> um, great. Uh, so uh... Just to let our listeners know uh, best book is how to Clone a mammoth and I think I derailed us a little bit from talking about mammoths per se, but there is much more of a historical trend talking about some of the uh, the history that's gone into this particular project as well as some others uh, some that were mentioned in our interview today but uh some that were not um and I think I'd like to end or like kind of try to wrap up our interview by asking a question about uh what is it like to uh what is it like to write a book as opposed to a, a scientific paper? Um, we know that you're a scientist, <laughs> right? We know that you're a scientist who works um, at the University of California, Santa Cruz. And, uh, yeah, I'm curious, I, I'm curious to know. What do you think the big difference was?
1: Uh, writing a book was more fun. <laughs> <laughs> and,
0: and, why, and why is that?
1: I don't know, there's a, a little bit more um, freedom to be creative, I think. I mean, a lot of the the book um, discusses in detail some of the work that I've published scientific papers on, but it's a very different audience that you're talking to when you write a book than when you write a paper for a scientific journal or a scientific publication. And I think I prefer um, talking to and with uh, audiences that actually comprise people who are a little bit more flexible in the way that they think about the world around them. Not everything has to be entirely proven in order to be possible if you're just kind of thinking off the cuff and wondering about the excitement of the future. And I like that. I like I like the the freedom that came with, with that sort of writing and
0: thinking. So do you think, I, I guess, the do you think that you'll be writing another book in the future, like on a different set of topics?
1: <laughs> oh, I don't know. Um, probably. I did, I did enjoy it quite a lot. It's just one of these, uh, one of the things there about being a, an academic is trying to find time to do all this stuff, right? Like, um, at the moment, I, I need to get back to, uh, to grading, uh, the papers that my students turned in yesterday. So, after uh, i finish that, and then i make dinner for my children and husband, and, and uh, and if I'm not too tired after that, I might think a little bit about the next one.
0: <laughs> <laughs> well, um, sorry, I, I mean, just to to sort of like abstract that a little bit more when, when uh, there's like a, people talk about scientific communication. Right. And, and we know that scientific papers are sort of like the communication of science within within scientists. Right. You're talking about what you found and, and stuff like that. And then here we have this book, and you said it's an entirely different audience, right, communicating to um, people who don't necessarily have, like, the the very specific interests of your discipline. And I'm just wondering how, like, again, how, it's kind of still trying to loop back to this question, how the book, how the book complements or works with or works against the things that you say in scientific papers.
1: Well, I think it definitely works with it. i mean, i'm I'm using the material from my research to to write the book. and And when I write scientific papers, I also try to do it in a way that people can understand. I mean, there are different ways of communicating science even to scientists. And we appreciate being able to understand and interpret and enjoy the stuff that we read, even if it is very critical or very, you know you know, mathematical or scientific or however you want to uh, distinguish writing a popular, a trade book from a, from a professional book, right? Um, This is, it's, it's all very similar. And uh, you know, this is, this book came from my research. It came out of the type of, Work that I've been doing for the last two decades, and also the stuff that has motivated that work, and and the 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 opportunity to communicate to new and different audiences. And I don't think they're exclusively different. I mean, I'm a scientist, and I love reading trade books, and I know lots of people who do as well. Um, but uh, hopefully, just a you know a wider audience. So not but not necessarily different audiences. The the opportunity to do that is a is a way of. Um, increasing... Sorry, my uh, I'm sitting here and my black cat is crawling on top of my head right now as I'm trying to do this. and completely distracting me from answering the
0: questions. Oh yeah, <laughs> scientists have cats too. No.
1: <laughs> I have two cats, a grey one and a black one, and this black one is the most annoying. <laughs> oh goodness. Anyway, <laughs> sorry about that. I derailed that question.
0: <laughs> no, no, that's fine. I, I think that, that's, that, that that's, that's very helpful to hear. Um... It's nice to know. It's it's nice to know that um, some scientists, maybe all or most. uh, This is I'm not sure. I can't speak on the population of scientists, but we'll speak as as you as an example are willing to take that time to translate some of the ideas that they've been working very hard to communicate in closed circles and and help um, more people understand that. And I definitely felt that coming out from your book.
1: Well, you know, I think scientists don't choose to be scientists so that they can only talk to other scientists. I think that uh, we we choose to do the research that we do because we genuinely want the work that we spend our days just sitting in front of a computer or digging through piles of bones in the lab or wearing a funny outfit and, and pipetting tiny amounts of liquid from one tube to another, we want the time that we spend doing that to make a genuine impact on the way people think or the way people change their behavior or the way politicians enact endangered species and environmental legislation. And if we aren't pushing toward that goal by trying to communicate our science to a broad an audience as we can, then we're not doing the best we can as scientists.
0: Great. Well, on that wonderfully positive note, uh, thanks for joining us, Beth, on Grok Science.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for having me.